BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table, but it was like super hot. And then I um dropped it. And now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? <laughs> Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Welcome, everyone, to episode 56 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I am your host, Jack Rico. And if you are a first-time listener to this U.S. Latino pop culture show, thank you very much for discovering us. And please share the show with all of your friends. On this mid-November episode, I talk Latin Grammys with music journalist Isabel Raigosa from Rolling Stone magazine. We break down the top categories, the possible upsets, what to expect from the telecast, and why some of your favorite Latin stars we're not nominated. Also, I review one of the most anticipated movies of the year, DC's Justice League, with two film critics friends of mine, Julian Roman from MovieWeb.com and Emerson Unger from New York's K1047, as we give our first reaction as we leave a private advanced screening in New York's Warner Brothers screening room. You won't want to miss that. And speaking of film critics, Gil Robertson, president of the African American Film Critics Association, joins the show to discuss the future of multicultural film and TV criticism with a new venture he's launching called Kaleidoscope Reviews, where he looks to raise awareness of the importance of having African American, Hispanic, Latinx, Asian, and Native American film critics in Hollywood. So keep your headphones on. This is the Highly Relevant Podcast. Se sienta el poder de la música. Latin Grammy, el jueves 16 de noviembre a las 7.6 Centro por Univision. The Latin Grammys is airing live tonight on Univision, and to help me anatomize and predict who will win Latin music's highest honors, I have on the line right now Isabela Raigosa. She's a music journalist who writes for Rolling Stone magazine. Isabela, thanks for coming on and uh, talking some Latin Grammys. Hey, Jack. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, it's interesting. I was looking at the interest of the Latin Grammys that's happening Thursday night, uh, airing on Univision out of Vegas. And I was looking at to see just what the main... I mean, because this is probably one of the best years historically for Latin music in terms of the mainstream crossover, you'd think that mainstream television, mainstream news outlets, you know, internet sites, Twitter, would be abuzz with the Latin Grammys and just discovering new Latin artists that they've they've never heard of. And I'm Googling just to see if Anyone, any one of the big music outlets, Pitchfork, you know, Rolling Stone magazine. I know you're doing, you're covering for Rolling Stone uh, this week, but you're not really seeing anyone else cover it. Has that been your experience or or am I just like not looking properly? No, I think you're right. I, I, there's only very selective artists that do get to cross over within the mainstream outlets that you've pointed out. And um, I think it's still going to take um, a bit of time for the real crossover to happen where um, especially we're seeing like more alternative or indie acts there but you know basically you'll see Romeo Santos or J Balvin or you know the likes of Daddy Yankee and mm-hmm. Fonsi on, on those outlets but it's very sparse it's not that why like, do you present. think that is why do you think that there's a lack of buzz in mainstream media well, for Latin music, even though we've had one of the greatest years in music for Latinos? Primarily, it has to do with the people that are in charge of the curation and the editors. I mm-hmm. think that they haven't still penetrated the fact that, like, in their psyche that 
it's uh, definitely a growing market. There's only a few, like, I mean, The Fader is actually doing an excellent job with covering Latin content. And, you know, they're one of the first to catch on that there's a, a wave that's, you know, getting bigger. But I think that if the momentum continues, uh, those other traditional, like, big outlets will catch on. I mean, they have to. <laughs> Let's kind of break down exactly what's going on with the Latin Grammys. Um there's a lot to be said about Despacito, which is probably the big sort of song that everyone's looking to see. Is it going to win record of the year? Is it going to win song of the year? Um, and kind of let's kind of go through exactly what what uh, the the record of the year is so far. There's a lot. You know, it's funny because when you look at the, the, the regular Grammys, the English language Grammys, and they usually have like five songs. Here it's like, what, two, four, six, eight. 10 tracks for record of the year. I'll go wow. through them yeah. quickly. La Flor de Canela from Ruben Blades. El Surco from Jorge De Drexler. Quiero Que Vuelvas from Alejandro Fernandez from Mexico. Despacito, Luis Fonsi featuring Daddy Yankee. El Ratico from Juanes featuring Cala Uchis. Uh, which, by the way, I I'm not so crazy about her, but people are, man. They're, they're hailing her as, like, you know, the hot new thing of 2017. Mon Laferte uh, yeah. is more my speed. I like her uh, a lot. She's featured Juanes in a song called Amarrame. Then there's Maluma. Of course, we got to have Maluma. Felices Los Cuatro. Vente Paga, Ricky Martin featuring Maluma as well. So that's two Maluma tracks in the record of the year. Guerra from Residente and Chantaje from Shakira featuring Maluma. So that's three Maluma tracks. This yeah. dude's having that's it. Uh, this dude's like a like a superstar for this year. You got Shakira, Ricky Martin, Residente, Juanes, Lois Fonsi, and then you got the second tier people. Yet mm -hmm. no one's thinking that Despacito might win this. Who do you think, in your sort of look at this uh list, who do you think takes record of the year? Well, I mean, I think the obvious answer would have to sort of be i mean despacito just how can it not the, be right yeah i mean i think it would be like pretty ridiculous if it wasn't just because of i mean it's it's been on it just recently exceeded four billion uh, youtube views um you know just not that long ago i think it's a world record at um at that at that number and it was 16 weeks on the billboards hot yeah, it tied uh, yeah. Mariah Carey's uh, record. Um, yeah, but I, is but is popularity of a song a death sentence when it comes to prestige award shows like the Grammys, like the Latin Grammys? I think um, it's not really like a form, a solid formula. Um, I a lot of times, yeah, it could be popularity, but other times, I think that they do want to go with a non predictable decision and mm -hmm. you know sometimes just based it on the quality of the song and how good it is compositionally um so i i mean besides despacito my second guess would probably be residente yeah you know it's funny that you mentioned residente because a lot of people um that i've spoken to really like guerra yo te miro y mi rabia te toca cuando grito sin usar la boca y mi furia se come a la gente the dude's really amazing. They really, truly love him. I think it's more because of the political statements, the social commentary that he has in his music. And he's really yeah. a throwback to like sort of like a 60s type of like, you know, hippie activist musician uh, where his songs are really not meant to be commercial. They're really meant to sort of change uh, our communities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Nevertheless, I got to be honest with you. I don't remember the last time I heard a Residente song. The last time I actually heard a Residente song was with Calle 13. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. I don't hear him on the radio. Uh, I don't, I barely see him do interviews. Uh, I don't see him covered that much by Latin outlets or English outlets. So where do, why do you think this guy wins so much? And why do you think the Latin Grammys loves him so much? Well, I think that, you know, you did point out that he's a very, like, incisive, pedagogic and controversial artist and an activist. And also he has a, 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 a dismal for his, you know, way of seeing things very comical and satirical. I mean, he he's kind of like the whole package of what we like to see in an artist. You know, he has all, all the dimensions and the throwbacks and like, you know, hip hop and um, also just 
the the folkloric um, beats um, accompanying that as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that with when when you really appreciate the multidimensional aspect of music, we cannot really necessarily look at pop. Uh, to fulfill that and I think that I mean it, it was very apt to uh, nominate him several times because he definitely is a very multi-dimensional artist and even though unfortunately he does also get overlooked by the mainstream media because mainstream media basically just want traffic and they look for what's popular but if you're looking for like real quality engaging controversial pedagogic content then Residente is a perfect poster boy for that really well said uh, Isabella let's move on to album of the year uh Ruben Blades again uh his album Salsa Big Band it's funny like this isn't like your old traditional salsa you know he's he's managed to somehow uh he's always been romantic with his salsa but he's always been like a residente also with his lyrics where uh, he makes that 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 incisive social commentary that kind of yeah. like really jabs and probes at leaders, at politicians, uh, at the way we live, et cetera, et cetera. So that makes a lot of sense for him to be in the album of the year. Obviously, he's one of the great legend artists that we have around right now. Antonio Carmona, I've never really heard of. Vicente Garcia is from the Dominican Republic, and this guy's been like a sensation. Uh, an acoustic, folkloric sort of uh, type, but very un-bachata-like. Uh, I think that it's a, it's a great new sound coming out of the Dominican Republic with him. Nicky Jam has Phoenix, and this would probably be the most commercially, probably, you know, album, big album that's coming out uh, in this list of the album of the year. Mis Planes Son Marte from Juanes, which me, to, out of all the albums that I've heard in this list, that to me is my favorite. It's a mix between... Something innovative, a different sound that Juan is. He's always trying to reinvent himself, but he's left, you know, a lot of that old, like, Medellin type of uh, Colombian folk sound. And he's really sort of amped up the electronica, uh, his vocal uh, sort of transitions and, and, and vocal stylistics have also changed in this. And he's really sort of reinvented himself with a kind of a new sound. And almost every track from Mis Planes on Marte, it's just, you know, phenomenal. I love this album. I hear it over and over again. I just don't get tired of it. Mon Laferte has La Trenza. A lot of people really like her. Um, she seems to come out of like nowhere and, and has made a major impact in 2017. Natalia Laforcada has Musas. Um, she's always on every single music list that you could possibly think of. Again, we got Residente, which makes him the front runner. Shakira. Now, this is a global superstar. Whenever she comes in, you know, you, you have to say, well, she has to be one of the favorites to win it. What did you think of El Dorado? Well, I really like the way that she's been evolving, you know, ever since she started off, like, I mean, in the 90s. And it's definitely, you know, charged with that tropical, uh, coastal Caribbean uh, vibe. And mm -hmm. a lot of the featured artists that she has, too, I think that, that makes the album a lot have a lot more weight because they're bringing in their own particular fusions, you know, like uh, Prince Royce and... Uh, Maluma, you know, just so, right. Maluma, you know, you have like that that uh, Latin flavor, but at the same time, it's it's it has that poppier vibe that makes it very just global. So I think it was an excellent album. Uh, and then the final one for album of the year is Danai Suarez uh, with an album called Palabras Manuales. Have you heard of her? And have you heard the album? I've heard some of the tracks of the album. I'm not gonna say I've listened to the whole thing, but I've always been a fan of Danai Suarez since. Uh, she Describe with, her to uh, me, you know, for, for people that might not know Danai Suarez, what can we expect from her and why do you think she's um, so buzzed about in the Latin Grammys this year? Well, I, I'm very happy that she's been at the forefront of, uh, you know, like a new artist discovery this year. Um, she's often been compared to the likes of like Erica Badu or Lauren Hill. <laughs> Her work is a representation of Cuban folklore paired against uh, like hip hop cool. Um, and, you know, she just has like this sway about her. And um, I think that that mm. uh, th there's a lot of artists today, even just within the listings that are still rescuing that um, traditional uh, sounds of their hometown, like Natalia Laforcade, who, you know, is, is in this category as well. You know, she's been very 
present with that, but obviously, like, yeah, it's a very it. retro, vintagey sound, you know, that they're trying to modernize, but still sort of maintain sort of the spirit of, you know, the great classical, you know, music of yesterday. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm I'm all about Danae Suarez, and I, I mean, even she's nominated for this category, and also Best New Artist, which is a, a contrasting yeah. uh, dynamic there. So, uh, I'm I'm hoping she'll you know, snag something. <laughs> Be, uh, I'm rooting for her. <laughs> uh, speaking of best new artist, uh, let's go through these. Cause again, the Latin Grammys just seems to like, you know, uh, overwhelm us <laughs> with, uh, a, a deluge of artists. Let's begin with, uh, Paula Arenas. Um, she's a very soothing vocal, uh, singer. Uh, I've heard a lot of her songs, you know, like I, I just, have Spotify playlist on and I'm either like cooking or, or, or surfing the net. She comes on. I'm like, who's that? And it's like, oh, Pablo Arenas. Oh, not, not bad. Then you got CNCO. And this these guys are, are, are it's an interesting story about CNCO. They've been around for about two years already. Um, they kind of have the template of um, One Direction. They, they were basically mm-hmm. fabricated and manufactured on a TV show called La Banda on Univision. They were yeah. put together. They were individual artists that uh, Alejandro Sanz, Ricky Martin, and, uh, and, and a few others kind of just collected together to create a boy band. And so the girls were cheering, blah, blah, blah. But all of a sudden, they started kind of like getting some like heavy radio airplay. And then yeah. as recent, they did a song, a crossover song uh, with Latin Mix, which is a girl band from England. So these guys have really sort of... They're the only boy band that I know outside of uh, Rebelde that have really come on the scene and made some sort of impact. Uh, What do you think about these guys? Do you think that they should even be nominated or are they so commercially manufactured that they shouldn't even have been included in a prestigious award like this? I think that it uh, brings also another interesting dynamic. They also have a secret weapon as a songwriter. Uh, I don't think he writes all the songs, but definitely wrote a few of them, uh, Fade, and Fade co-wrote Ginza with J Balvin. So you know mm. how that one went. It won a Guinness World Record for longest stay at Billboard. Right. Um, the charts. But um, I think that like even just with the regular uh, Grammys, we've always been like sort of fascinated with these kind of uh, figures that are, you know, very like aesthetically just boy band perfect visually with p- perhaps don't carry a lot of like that musical merit that they craft on their mm-hmm. own as composers right but i mean i think it, it's it's all entertainment and they're definitely entertainment <laughs> yeah because i don't i don't remember new kids on the block 98 degrees backstreet boys even one direction making it all the way to the grammys and uh you know it's just that there's something about a boy band that just seems fluffy and that just seems yeah. uh, vacuous and empty uh, in yeah, terms of no, their music. But I think that might be changing, right? I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about that that example of uh, historically with Grammys when um, Millie Vanilli won, remember? Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> and talk about the irony, the, the, the irony behind that simply because they were a manufactured band. Exactly. That was the, the, the epitome of, you know, not true. Girl, you know but it's just... true. <laughs> <laughs> so, Crazy. I mean, you got to have a little bit of some throwback or some nostalgia there for, you know. <laughs> right. So continue on with the list. We got Vicente Garcia once again for the Dominican Republic. I mean, he, he's he's all over the place. Then you got Martina La Peligrosa, which I have not heard of. Then you got Mao y Ricky. As I understand it, they are the children of Ricardo Montaner. So it's more of like okay. a poppy thing. And uh, obviously, you know, when you have those genes, <laughs> there's something yeah. to be said there. There's Rawayana. I love Rawayana Sofia Reyes, which is a Mexican-American girl uh, who um, seems to have a huge following. Rosalia, then there's Danai Suarez, and then there's Colombian Sebastián Yatra. He's an interesting cat. He's he's done crossover music with One Republic. Uh, he's worked with some of the biggest acts in urban music, yet for some reason, I feel like he's more being forced down our throats Mm-hmm. Then, then it's more like he either has a great manager, a great record label, or a great publicist. But I don't necessarily know that Sebastiana, even though he's out there a lot, I don't necessarily he's putting out some great music. What is your 
opinion of Sebastián Yatra? Well, all I know is his hit, uh, Traicionera, I believe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's the name. Um, I think it... The first time I heard it, I wasn't, like, totally drawn, but because I've right. heard it so many times, it's like I'm sort of singing along to it, and I think that's the way we're programmed to consume, <laughs> you know? Right. But I don't really think much of him. He's not a particular character that stands out to me, to be honest with you. Yeah, me too. And then finally, uh, let's talk about, you know, probably what it most, you know, fans are going to be tuning into the Latin Grammys to see is uh, the best urban song. Uh, we got Lingua Franca. Never heard of these uh, guys. I don't think it's a group or a singer. Achapa Equente. Have you have you heard of them? Uh, I don't know. I haven't actually. No, no. So the, yeah. So the Lang Grammys. But you know what? This is the cool thing about the Lang Grammys. I'll give them that. That they they'll put on someone you've never heard of. Yeah. That hasn't really had any Spotify plays or there's no buzz around it yet. They're awesome. And so I look forward to discovering a lot of great new Latin music through the Latin Grammys. Uh, and this, these guys might be one of them. And there's Ghetto Kids with Coqueta. Nicky Jam El Amante, which to me is the favorite to win the whole thing. But then you got Hema with Pitbull, J Balvin, and Camila Cabello. Papa, Lapis Concientering featuring Vico C. And it's the first time we see Vico C come out, return from a long exile out of music. And he's mm -hmm. going against Residente and Somos Anormales. And Vico C was one of the like the pioneers right. of like the whole urban movement, reggaeton movement back in the early late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. So how does this one look to you? Well, that, you know, I, I cannot speak much of the track because I have not listened to it, but I think that even just featuring Vico C again, it's another uh secret weapon that, you know, these guys are bringing to the, the forefront because as urban players, um, I think that it was even just stri strategic, even when, when we talk about Despacito by bringing that Yankee into it because he's also one of the pioneers of reggaeton, not as uh, not as old school as Vico C, but Vico C carries a lot of that, uh, you know, respect mm -hmm. from, from because it's more like hip hop as well, not necessarily extreme urban, like maximalist EDM, uh, reggaeton. So um, I'm excited to, you know, see this category just go the way it is. And I think it's a very good mix as well with, you know, like you mentioned, uh, artists that I also particularly haven't, you know, ran across and uh, and also just, you know, your usual suspects like right. J Balvin. And, By the yeah. way, speaking <laughs> of J Balvin, I, I, I barely saw him on any of the uh, of the major uh, nominations. Was it that his album came out too late and he wasn't eligible for maybe some of these? Or has anybody asked you any of those questions? Why I, I know he's performing, but, yeah. I mean, he had one great year. Yeah, well, I mean, his album, Energia, did come out uh, last year, 2016. So I don't know if that has to do uh, mm. because of it. And it came out in March, so it wasn't that late. It, was, it, it should have been more present i guess last year which i think it was but what about me because I, I know that was a big hit this year oh yeah well but that yeah that one was obviously like the runner-up from you despacito. Know, despacito exactly i i mean it should have been record uh, nominated for record of the year in my opinion i guess if we're you know going on the popular aspect of it but i mean i thought it was like super contagious like i hear the b and it's just like whoa yeah. it's, it's already like part absolutely. of absolutely it's a culture. loss not to have maybe he might perform the song but it's a loss not to have it you know maybe it wasn't eligible uh, eligible for uh because of the time it came out or whatever but yeah who knows about the politics with that like who qualifies right who uh, and then before I let you go, Isabella, I wanted to talk to you about the performances. J Balvin's going to be performing, Bad Bunny, Flor de Toloache, Luis Fonsi. I don't know if he's performing with Daddy Yankee. be awesome if he can do a performance with Yankee. And as a surprise, Justin Bieber comes out and we see, you know, the final closing minutes of the Latin Grammys. That would bring the house down uh, just because they've never performed on television. And I don't think Bieber has ever performed with them, period. Uh, I know he did it with Fonsi at a concert, but it was very improv. Uh, Daddy Yankee wasn't around. Lo, uh, Mon Laferte, Natalia Laforcade, Maluma, Residente, Sofia Reyes. I heard Diplo just announced that he was going to be performing along with Alicia Cara. Uh, French Montana is going to be uh, there with Steve Aoki. So 
What can you tell me about your personal experience of watching the Grammys? Do you feel that it's the greatest award show in Latin music? Do you, uh, are you, is your mind blown every time you see this? Is there room for improvement? What do you like? What do you not like about the visual experience of watching the Grammys at home? What I do enjoy about it is that we normally see like unprecedented, uh, genre mashups and surprise performances Mm -hmm. from artists that we don't really expect. Um, I do kind of suspect that Bieber might be there. The reason why is because for the past two years, J Balvin has brought on uh, Mo from Denmark and uh, Diplo for the remix that that, um, J Balvin did for Lean On. Mm -hmm. Then last year he brought uh, uh, for Safari, Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Pharrell Pharrell Williams. So, I mean, I think that with with a super mega star like J Balvin, he definitely has the weight to maybe just convince or sway Beaver. But I I guess I enjoy that aspect of it. Um, I guess what I don't enjoy or I find very predictable are normally like that they play it safe. I, I was very bothered by it last year, particularly because there were no discussions of you know, politics uh, being said, especially with the with Donald Trump had been elected at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, the past two years were very like politically heavy with Mana and Los Tigres del Norte uh, declaring in a banner, don't vote for races after their performance together. Mm-hmm. And then the previous uh, Barack Obama was talking, uh, saying a, a speech about immigration. So I found it very odd and peculiar that last year not, nothing of that sort like was mentioned especially when the latin community was wailing on you know the the on that i think that what i'm expecting too is that there's going to be some sort of um honorable or or uh, m- mention or just uh you know a space reserved for the victims of the earthquake and the hurricanes in puerto rico and the earthquake in mexico um there had been a lot of musicians that came together to you know write songs uh, about it and empower the community and how we witnessed the community lift itself up without the help of the government right per se so um i'm kind of hoping to see some of that you know being you know victims being uh honored and you know just memorialized i guess so uh those are some of the things that I'm uh, looking forward to. And obviously, like the performances, I'm uh, Natalia La Forcade um, released one of the most exciting albums, in my opinion, uh, this year mm-hmm. with Musas. So I'm very much looking forward to, you know, seeing that performance. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting because I remember watching the Latin Grammys on CBS and this was like the early 2000s. You know, this is the 18th edition of the Latin Grammys. They it used to be originally on CBS and the ratings were never that great. So ultimately, Leslie Moonves and the CBS crew decided to kind of just shove it over to Univision. It made a lot of sense for Univision to have it at that moment just because they had uh, all the uh, big award shows around that time and... Uh, it only made sense for the biggest Spanish media company to also have the biggest Spanish language uh, music award show. So it made a lot of sense. But one yeah. of the big problems that I have is you got to understand that when a viewer sits down to watch a music award show, uh, they're looking simply, just pragmatically speaking, to listen to the favorite songs that they've heard uh, on radio or on their iPhone. You know, those are the yeah. tracks that they want to see. But mm-hmm. because of radio airplay being so political against alternative music and any other type of music outside of the universe of reggaeton, a lot of these artists don't get that airplay. And so they're, they're seen as new. Like, when was the last time you heard Natalia Laforcade in any radio station played in America? Yeah. It's, a, it's very it, limited. It's very limited. And so because, you know, you have your salsa uh, stations, you know, and that those are more traditional older people who are listening to it. Mm-hmm. But but when you sit down and watch them, um, a lot of fans probably go bathroom break. I don't know who she is. And that song is kind of like depressing. So I'm going to walk off and do something else. And the other thing I wanted to say right before I let you go is 
you know, this segregation of music uh, is something that also I feel like needs to stop. You know, I, I, I love that we have the Latin Grammys, but we're only playing music to ourselves. It's going, you know, it's like you get the same fans, the same outlets listening to the, you know, the same artists uh, with different music. And it's not reaching anyone else. We have to use some sort of reverse inclusiveness where this Latin music can be shared uh, to an English language audience. How you do that. you know, yeah. Go ahead. Where you I've always, say? I've always thought exactly the same thing. It's like we played it for ourselves. Even just watching Pharrell Williams last year walking on the red carpet, and how these uh, reporters were gushing anytime that there's a crossover or an American act in their event and our event. It's like, oh my god, you know, like they become like the spotlight because it's it's not. It's usual rare. To see. It's com- it's it completely is. uncommon. Yeah, and I do believe that. Um, I, I don't know. I mean, especially with what we were talking about earlier, this uh, Latin music boom phenomenon that has occurred this year. Um, I think that there are things to uh, be, you know, we, we're going to witness a lot of change, I think. Um, if if the momentum continues and it keeps rising and I mean, statistically, we've seen it remain with, you know, just like the the uh, world uh, breaking YouTube views and uh, and, you know, that, that's already like evidence that Billboard having the top, the top five Latinos. Uh, I just heard that Camila Cabello Havana is like top three. Uh, Mi gente yeah. reached very high. Then you had Cardi B coming out of nowhere and landing on the number one spot of Dominicana. Despacito, obviously. So yeah. there's been a major, massive impact in the billboards. And, and the right, and the the top streaming songs on Spotify in the summer, the the top thirty worldwide. Uh, set, there were seven of them were Latin artists. So that's really massive already. So it's I think it's like infiltrating. Like you, I guess it's more of the rhythm than the language. Right. I would say. You know, we were having this discussion uh, previously, and I think it's a very uh, universal uh, rhythm because it's already being sophisticated uh, quote-unquote with more popular sound it's not tradition but still presenting the traditional elements but kind of revamping them in this sheer of 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 of, uh mainstream pop and i mean everybody wants to have a good time everybody wants to dance you know and and these songs are extremely catchy and dance worthy and dance friendly so um i think that there's that like even just with the mainstream blowing up and still uh, regionalism, uh, traditional genres, still pretty much being planted firm within older generations. It definitely is sandwiching um, uh, to a smaller point, the Latin alternative soundscape. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but um, there are a few artists that I feel could have like the potential, even like Bomba Studio. I was surprised that Bomba Studio was not nominated for anything except a music video that from Can a you song believe that. that? Now that yeah, you bring it up, I ex- thought they had an excellent album. I interviewed them uh, earlier this year, and oh my god, I, I fell in love with that album. I, I uh, a friend of it's mine from Japan a heard fantastic it. Fantastic album. I my, a friend fantastic. of mine from yeah, fantastic. A, a friend of mine from Japan heard it in Tokyo and says, "Yo, thank you, thank you so much for introducing me to Bomba Stereo. My whole family's dancing like on this weekend, wow. just just going up and down. It's because their music is so contagious. I mean, but we go back to this." you know, politics of music uh, with radio stations and, and program directors that they're just not open-minded. It's all about, well, this is what's working and we're not going to, you know, push away from that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Romeo Santos, which I thought put that out a really good album. Shock. What the yeah. hell? Especially because, I mean, he's extremely big with popularity. Like, I think he lit up the Empire State Building to match with the concept of the album. So it's like that he's already working with you know the empire state building and lighting the lights and right you know just i mean still, and it's star power a superstar. yeah it's star power and so for him not to get nominated i'm like extremely confused because at, at one point i thought that bachata could have the potential to be within the same caliber of reggaeton at least but yes. i've i've witnessed that we've witnessed that trap music does have a lot of that because a lot of the um, reggaeton artists are also singing trap like Osuna and J Balvin mm-hmm. for example so and then Bad Bunny is also highly on the rise uh, he's performing um, on Thursday mm-hmm. so and like the, this guy doesn't even have any 
records he just has a bunch of singles yeah like how osuna began as well like just like laying a bunch of singles on youtube and boom they go viral well isabella always a great conversation with you thank you so much for coming on you know i admire your musical knowledge and insights so <laughs> thank you again thank you so much jack it's a pleasure being on your show It's time for Jack Dig. Let's begin with the top movie news of the week. Justice League is eyeing a $120 million opening weekend at the box office. Disney Pixar's Coco is now the highest grossing animated movie ever in Mexico. Titanic will re-release in 2D and 3D in Dolby Cinemas to celebrate its 20-year anniversary. Ticket app MoviePass may be launching a streaming service. Sam Mendes exits Disney's live-action Pinocchio. And Wonder Woman 2 will now be releasing November 1st, 2019. In TV news, there's a new Latino drama coming to the Stars Channel called Family Crimes. Amazon Studios has bought the rights to Lord of the Rings for a whopping $250 million. Page Six TV heads to Hulu. The podcast Crime Town is getting a TV adaptation over at FX. Netflix's The Punisher begins streaming Friday, November 17th. And the new trailer for FX's The Assassination of Gianni Versace starring Ricky Martin, Edgar Ramirez, and Penelope Cruz is out right now. Here's a listen. Shortly before 9 a.m., fashion designer Gianni Versace was shot on the steps of his villa. Pronounced Versace. Singer? That's Liberace. He was a creator. He was a genius. Everything you see around us, this house, this company, it was his life. I will not allow that man, that nobody, to kill my brother twice. Andrew Cunanan, 27 years old, he's killed four men. This world has wasted me, and yet this world also made you, Mr. Versace, into a star. You're not better than me. We're the same. The only difference is that you got lucky. Switching over to music, Shakira postpones her European tour due to a vocal cord hemorrhage. Maluma will release a new album titled Fame in 2018 and announces U.S. tour dates, which you can check out on showbizcafe.com. Bachatero Romeo Santos also announces U.S. dates for his Golden Concert Tour, and Demi Lovato and Luis Fonti have a new Spanish-language song, Echame la Culpa, releasing this Friday, November 17th. In digital and social media news, Apple's new iPhone X is now taking two to three weeks to ship from the Apple online store. Twitter is re evaluating its blue badge verification process. Instagram will soon let users follow hashtags in addition to accounts. ESPN launches SportsCenter on Snapchat and Reddit may go public in 2020. And finally in Broadway news, Lin Manuel Miranda will be bringing the Broadway musical smash hit Hamilton to Puerto Rico for a three-week run in January 2019 and assuming the lead role of Alexander Hamilton once again. John Leguizamo's new Broadway play Latin History for Morons has extended its Broadway run for an additional three weeks at Studio 54, a Donna Summer musical might be coming to Broadway, Warner Brothers Broadway musical Charlie and the Chocolate Factory will play its final performance January 14th, 2018. What's on your weird mind? I'm putting together a team. I'm in. You are? That was beautiful. These things are going to keep coming. You get technical. I'm on bug duty. Let's do it. Right ain't over yet. My man. It's no secret that Warner Brothers and DC have floundered from the very beginning in trying to appeal its superhero films to a global audience. Apart from Wonder Woman's success, can their colossal franchise tentpole Justice League, a film that unites DC's greatest heroes in one film, convert critics and skeptics alike. Well, I discussed this on the streets of Manhattan with the first reaction from longtime film critic Julian Roman from MovieWeb.com and Emerson Unger from New York's K104.7 as we leave a private screening of the film in New York. I'm Julian Roman with MovieWeb. I do the East Coast stuff. I thought it was better than expected. There were a lot of problems with it, but the characters are good, and if you like Justice League, you'll be entertained, right? Yeah, I would second that, Emerson Unger, and I would agree with you on that. I was very pleasantly surprised that the fight scene at the end was not extremely long, and I actually liked that, but there were some kind of melancholy moments in the movie. Well, yeah, let, let, let's get through the, the negative aspects of this, because I think everyone's going to compare the Justice League to the Avengers. Uh, is it better than the Avengers? What did you not like about it? 
Well, it's not as good as those movies by far, but it's better, Melissa, better than Batman vs. Superman, much better than Suicide Squad. So it's not terrible, but obviously the film was recut, you know, and so they gave us the best product they had. And I'll say it again, like I say in my review, the characters are good. Affleck owns this movie. You like Wonder Woman. Arthur Curry is great. You know, and that's the basis of something better, right? Right. This movie isn't Wonder Woman, which really bummed me out. But you know what? I think it was compared to what they all the drama that I went through to produce this exactly. film. I was pleasantly surprised. I was entertained, um, and I thought it was better than Batman versus Superman. Don't hate me for saying it. That's, 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 that movie's so bad. <laughs> uh, you know, it was interesting because I'm seeing this, and like you said, I think one of the big problems about this movie is the overload of CGI. It's bereft of soul. Uh, it's it's not. It's it's a movie that 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 needed a better storyline, in, in my particular opinion. It needed a better dramatic effect. It, totally. it, it 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 lacks something. But nevertheless, it's a movie that should be seen because it has a lot of good things too. So overall, I guess one to five, I would give it a three, maybe three and a half. What would you think? I give it a three and a half, a solid three and a half, maybe even a four. Because like I said, it was. I thought it was entertaining. It wasn't great, but it wasn't by no means bad. And I know a lot of people have been knocking Warner Brothers. Knock it unfairly, I agree with her. Yeah. yeah, a lot of people are going to knock it for for reasons that are easily viewable, right? But I think when you look at these movies, you have to look at it as a grain of salt as a kid, as an adult. Right. And it's much better than Batman, Superman. It's much better than Suicide Squad. Isn't as good as Wonder Woman, but you like the characters. The characters are all good, and that's the most important thing. Because think about it, right? Every film that gets recut by a, by another director is usually a fucking disaster. <laughs> Pardon my French. You know, like, remember when Walter Hill recut that movie? Yeah. He was like, oh he didn't even God. put his name on it. Right. You know, I mean, Dan Gilroy, he worked on Star Wars. He didn't put his name on it anywhere. But even though that turned out pretty good. So considering what Joss Whedon had to work with, I think it's better than expected, right? I'm, I'm just glad that we finally got to see these characters together, all together in one single film. It's been something that I think as kids we've been waiting for since Super Friends when we watch it on the yeah, cartoons exactly. and there were hints about it right at the end that we saw when it says six tables and it was like room for more so will we see the Wonder Twins you know well there, there's all these sort of uh, they're, they're going to try to match Marvel movie for movie every year coming on out so the onslaught is coming do you think that we needed isolated films of Flash and Cyborg before they hit the Justice League yeah, I don't know, because I'm on the fence. Because what I would say is this movie got me very excited about The Flash. Very excited for Aquaman. Yes, I thought yeah, both absolutely. of them were, were very the solid characters very and cast very well. So I'm excited to see their own independent films. Yeah. Going into this movie, I kind of wish that I would have actually had the opportunity to see individual movies. Because then I would understand them coming together and yes. why certain things work and other things didn't. Because they kind of tried to throw that in here. And it was just very rushed, which was difficult. You know, that's the challenge of like going, we're going to throw everyone together, you know, and not yeah. having their backstories. You know, the, the, the thing with Batman vs. Superman is that I felt that storyline needed four hours, and it was condensed down to maybe, what, how many was like 245 or something? It was think, two hours and 45 minutes of pure hell. It, it, uh, of pure hell. Do you, think, do, do you think a movie like this needed four hours to no, be told I, properly? Let me bring it up again, because I'm not sure your audience is aware of this, but Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns 1 and 2 is what that story was. It's a famous comic book from 15 years ago. They made it into a great cartoon that was like the first R-rated cartoon from Warner Brothers. Right. And if they had copied that exactly, that would have been incredible. But they didn't. They Michael Bait it. They Zack Snyder'd it. <laughs> and it was awful, right? Yeah. I think what Joss Whedon did is, when he got the cut of this movie, he was like, you know what? I'm going to take all the good parts and tape it together and cut all the garbage out. Because it comes in at, what, under two hours? Yeah. Yeah. You know? 159, actually. So you know the Snyder slash Michael Bay cut, I don't mean insult Snyder, would have been at least two and a half hours. <laughs> right. And so he thought that was all garbage and he removed it. And he just said, okay, here's the greatest hits version of this movie and we'll move on from here. Right, I think right, it's a good right. plan. Yeah. I'm excited. I want to see Josh Wheaton take over a little bit more of the franchise and start working with Warner Brothers. You know, it's interesting you it's interesting you say that because I think that this should be Zack Snyder's last film. He's been given every resource every guy that you could possibly get to work on this film. I just think that Snyder no longer has it to make a great superhero film. I was longing for the days of Nolan taking over maybe, you know, th this film in particular, doing something special with it, but I think we're caught up between do we have that dark superhero movie or do we have that funny superhero movie? And it just seems like this movie didn't know exactly whether to be Marvel funny or Nolan dark. Well, I wouldn't say it's dark at all, would you? 
It was weird because they kept throwing these one-liners in. It would try to be dark, and then it would throw these one-liners that just never landed. Like, you show up with a pitch. The, the j- jokes never never fell. Did you laugh at any point? I did laugh at some points. I mean, some of the, the sight gags are good. But, you know, I, I think, once again, not to besmirk Snyder, because Snyder's going through his problems, right. but if you look at the successful comic book directors... You know, they're, they're guys who lived and breathed this world since they were a kid, and they understand it, and they can deliver nuance, right? And if you look at what made Wonder Woman so good, they got a female director. Yeah. Alan Heinberg, who wrote the comic, wrote the screenplay. So here you have two people who are like, okay, we're going to make this more than what we think it is. This film isn't that, but all the characters are good enough, so the future looks bright if you get the right people right, to do it. Right, right, You know, I'm not sure if they went and got, like, a subpar director, it would be a good second film. But I think if they got someone who was good, you know, they're like, dig out, like the guy who made um, Spider-Man Homecoming, that guy, you know, get someone like like a mega nerd that knows all of this shit, <laughs> throw him out there, throw some money at him, and he'll probably make a good movie. Final thoughts? I'm, I, I, I always feel bad for Warner Brothers because they're stuck in between being dark and being humorous. Yeah. So I, I, I just, I know when they, when they kick ass and take names, it's amazing, and it can put Marvel to shame any day, you know? But, uh... I don't know. I'm excited to see. Yeah, I'm excited for The Flash. I'm excited for Aquaman. And it looks like there's going to be a sequel. Guys, if uh, you're listening to this, there's two end credits. One of them is just the dream thing that we always wanted to see. It's one character, another character, and there's a race. And then the final one, uh, we're going to see a brand new character that wasn't in the film. Uh, I'm excited to see how that goes. And I think it's a lead-in into probably one of the biggest battles that we're going to see between superheroes uh, that we haven't seen in a long time. So thank you very much, guys. Appreciate your uh, thoughts and uh, reviews. If you're looking for some new songs to listen to, check out these three tracks you might want to add to your playlist this weekend. Palabras Manuales. Danay Suárez. Sigo diciendo palabras manuales. Estoy diciendo palabras manuales. Sube el volumen y olvida lo feo. Eo. Vamos a vacilar. Cuando yo te diga, put your hands up high. Hi, Rawayana featuring Apache. Cuatro tres Miranda. Dale que te va a gustar, que no te dé vergüenza, que pierdo la paciencia. Joining me now is Gil Robertson. He's the president of the African American Film Critics Association, and he's here to discuss the launch of a new project called Kaleidoscope Reviews, which promotes diversity among film and television critics. Congrats on the uh, launch, Gil. Thank you so much. It's uh it's it's exciting. It's always exciting to be on the uh, the front side of something new and promising. Why do you believe that Kaleidoscope Reviews is important at this moment in time? You know, because diversity and more so conc- uh, inclusion is important. And uh, we felt that it was time to provide a an opportunity for... Uh, diverse journalists to uh, have a place where they can share their thoughts and opinions about uh, cinema, about TV, about uh, entertainment content. And so we just decided to, to create it. Instead of, you know, talking about it, we decided to do something about it. Why do you think that outlets like Rotten Tomatoes, Fandango, hasn't really embraced inclusiveness and diversity in their critics, uh, especially at a moment like this where... Uh, you have a, a a film like Moonlight that wins uh, the Oscar award, or you have Alfonso Cuaron and uh, Alejandro Iñárritu winning Best Directors in the last five years. Why do you think outlets like that haven't really embraced or have been so proactive in a concept like what you're doing with Kaleidoscope Reviews? You know, I think that it's something that they're certainly uh, now trying to do. I think that... Uh, very often it's easy to sort of get lost or caught up in what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think for no other reason than that, you know, you haven't seen uh, certain outlets uh, take advantage of the diverse, uh, you know, pool of talent that's out there that's available 
to offer their perspectives and opinions, uh, you know, about uh, entertainment content. So I don't know if there's anything, you know, menacing or, or particularly, uh, you know, negative in the fact that they haven't done it. I'm hoping that through, you know, our efforts with Kaleidoscope Reviews and uh, that it will inspire other outlets to also begin to uh, make, uh, to develop, to create a pipeline for a more diverse pool of, uh, of journalists, of, right. more, of critics. So take me through the, I guess, the invention of this uh, project. Uh, was it something that someone had mentioned to you and the outrage was so much that you said, you know, we got to do something about this. And you got together with a few friends and decided to, to make this. Who's funding it? How many people are involved in it? Uh, who are you partnering with? And do you have... I guess a group of critics. I know that you've you've uh, partnered up with Emerson College, uh, Nalip, which is the National Association of Latino Independent Producers, and I believe CAPE as well, the Coalition of Asian Pacifics in Entertainment. Um, h- how did this whole thing come together? You know, it actually came out of the uh, out of a conversation that I was having with Jen Yamato, who uh, is a journalist, uh, film critic. Uh, uh, currently writing for the LA Times, and we were having lunch one day. This was at the height of the Oscars for White uh, situation a few years ago, and I, you know, just just you know, sitting back with a friend having a talk, and I said, "Well, you know, if black people are angry, I said, you know, Hispanics <laughs> and Asians must be serious." Oh yeah, and she says, "Gil, you have no idea," and so you know, I thought about that, and I said, "You know what, you know." Um, you know, after we moved past the the uh, craziness of award season, I got together with a few uh, multicultural journalists, uh, you know, one being Jen um, and a few others. And I was like, you guys, you know, we really need, I'm really interested in providing, maybe creating a vertical that where we can, you know, attract, uh, you know, diverse journalists to talk about, you know, entertainment content. And everyone was sort of in agreement. And so last year or earlier this year, I'm sorry, we partnered with on the leap for a series of uh, workshops uh, with a group of multicultural journalists. Um, And so that was very well received. And then we did something with the LA film festival, which was also, uh, which was equally well received. And so that led to, um, we kind of fine tuning what, how we were going to roll this thing out. And so we've created partnerships with, uh, with universities because it, it, it occurred to me that one of the critical things that a journalist and a film critic needs as they are getting their career started is uh, an opportunity to have their work published. Right. Uh, as you and I both remember when we were starting, the, the one question that we were asked uh, at the start of our careers was uh you know where's your portfolio where are your clips <laughs> and you know so that's when i reached out to to emerson and i had done some work with emerson prior to that so there was already a relationship there they have and a very good journalism readily, uh department yes they do yes they do and uh great professors i mean my, I'm, I'm so impressed uh working with them and i also reached out to uga of the University of Georgia, as well as um, Columbia College in Chicago and uh, Loyola Marymount in Southern California. So I wanted to target the four, you know, points of the country and sort of expand from there. So we're working with all of the journalism departments, our mass communication uh, departments on those campuses to, uh, as a way, and they're utilizing Kaleidoscope as a way of, uh, furnishing their students with an opportunity to get just that, their first clip. And so working with them alongside working with, you know, some of the uh, studio and network agencies, you know, to make sure that they have access to content and that they can, you know, turn around reviews. And in some cases, even do interviews, uh, you know, on, uh, you know, important things in pop culture. Right. Uh, In terms of funding, uh, we are we're st- we're still in the beta stage of launching the site. We are working with two um, 
uh, large companies um, who are probably going to be coming on board uh, as our seed partners. And we're going to move at this real slow. Um, and we're, you know, moving through it very purposely. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. I think it's a great concept. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I think it's 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 widely needed, uh, especially at a moment uh, that we're living in right now. You have movies like Get Out, Mudbound, The Florida Project. I mean, Girls Trip made over $100 million already. And... Um, yeah, uh, an interesting film called Gook that came out about Korean-Americans. I mean... You know, there are a lot of great, you know, Shape of Waters opening. With Guillermo uh, del Toro. Well, you had Coco also just recently that's gonna about to come out in Absolutely. Thanksgiving, which is mainly Mexican uh, storyline, uh, spoken in English. So you, you have a lot of of inclusive content that's not really being spoken by perhaps people of that culture, right? That can maybe more accurately and precisely describe the nuances of the characters. And, uh, one, you know, it, it's, it's always very interesting because I think one of the big controversies for me in particular as a film and television critic has been seeing a, maybe perhaps someone who is of Caucasian having them write something about a Latin American film uh, that's completely in Spanish, that has nothing to do with their, cult- their culture or their experiences, and then they happen to write it, and then maybe perhaps uh, the review is lambasted or is negative. And the first thing you think of is, dude, you didn't get it. And the movie wasn't necessarily targeted for you, and yet you get to write for it for the Chicago Times or the New York Times or the LA Times or whatever it is, and I think that sometimes editors uh, make the mistake in assigning certain films to people that might not necessarily get the content or it's a film that might, might, not, might not be targeted to them in order for them to reach perhaps a more white audience or something like that. Have you felt that uh, on your end? And has have people spoken to you about things like that? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, the one of the motivators for why we, you know, felt there was a need to do this because so very often, you know, you have product being reviewed by people who aren't part of that community. And of course, that's not to say that those individuals don't have the ability to discern and, you know, communicate, you know, their thoughts and impressions about a particular project. But certainly when you, when you are tapping into, you know, a talent base uh, that includes people uh, from diverse communities who might, to your point, be able to, uh, you know, provide commentary that's more specific to the content being screened. And that's simply what we're, we're asking for here. You know, it's the opportunity to, you know, people want to have the best understanding, not just an understanding, the best understanding of, of a film like Coco, of a movie like Moonlight, of a film like Goop. You know, and of course, if you're able to, those films or or that content is being judged or being viewed or being critiqued by someone from that community, I just think one can automatically, it's a given that they're going to um, be able to uh, speak to it from a a place that... Of authenticity and genuineness that perhaps Absolutely. other people can. I Thank mean, I, you. I totally agree that there's a part- particular people are qualified and prepared to, to, to speak on certain subject matters than others. And even right. though we all have opinions, some opinions are better, you know? Um, and I think that kaleidoscope Absolutely. reviews definitely targets that. So, so now that you, so let's just go to phase two, right? So phase two is you get this launch, you get all the journalists. Now, once everybody writes their reviews and opinions on entertainment content uh, that is multicultural, then what happens? You know, there certainly will be the opportunity for uh, uh, other outlets to pick up or license the content that's on the site. Um, you know, obviously it will be, you know, very carefully archived on the site. You know, we're, we're looking at the launch, launch, launch to be sometime as we approach the summer movie season for uh, 2018. I mean, it's not a, a, it's not, this is not something that we're, we're creating necessarily as a, um, it's more as a talent incubator, really. And so, and it's once not that really talent fun- is prepared, though, once that talent is qualified, prepared, and ready to go, 
right? Like they've they've mastered, I guess, you know, the uh, whatever criteria was asked of them. Uh, where do they then head to? Well, hopefully, I mean, we're going to continue uh, through our partnerships with Cape and and uh, and the Leap and other organizations to offer, you know, journalism workshops, you know, to uh, groups in, you know, LA and New York and, you know, certainly major markets and certainly, you know, partner with our college campuses. And, you know, ultimately is to prepare these journalists to enter into the workforce, you know, right. and to create some sort of, to add to the pipeline of diverse journalists who are uh, out there and who are available to be hired. I wanted to ask you about interest from um, our, you know, multicultural communities when it comes to film criticism and television criticism. I parallel this with sports. You know, there was a big talk in sports about how African-Americans just aren't interested in baseball anymore. And so there was a lot of talk about, well, it's just that the community itself just finds baseball boring. They're not really interested. And then there was like talk about how baseball isn't really approaching uh, these communities uh, for their talent, you know, and it's really become sort of a whiter, maybe Latino sport, but no African-Americans. And so I parallel that with criticism. Do you feel there's a lot of interest uh, with people of color to want to get into film criticism or is, are they interested in other things and they just don't care? Because maybe that might be that might explain some of the reasons why there's a void there. You know, I think it's the fact that there hasn't been a lot of exposure given to, you know, the opportunities, uh, the professional opportunities that can come uh, out of being a film critic. I mean, both you and I have been able to build, you know, successful, you know, sustainable careers, you know, uh, as film critics and film journalists film and TV journalists. So I think that as more exposure is given to, you know, the various career opportunities and career tracks that uh, can be derived from, you know, reviewing movies, reviewing TV, that you'll see more people from those communities involved. Gil, and before I let you go, I know you're the president of the African-American Film Critics Association. What can we expect uh, from the organization uh, this year, next year, in the future? Well, you know, we just announced that uh, we're, you know, calling 2017 the year of the woman in cinema. 2017 was absolutely amazing in terms of, you know, the record-breaking opportunities seen by women behind the camera. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's certainly, obviously, Wonder Woman stands in front of the class with regards to its box office, you know, and critical success. Uh, It was also an an exceptional year, uh, one-of-a-kind year, for uh, black female filmmakers. Yeah, Dee uh, Reese is one of them. Total, yeah, you had a record total of like six, you know, studio films helmed by, you know, black directors. So, I mean, that's just, those numbers are just unheard of. And so we're gearing up for our annual, you know, tentpole uh, activity, uh, our awards program, which we'll have our luncheon on February 3rd, uh, 2018, where we're honoring uh, ABC Entertainment President Channing Dungey uh, with our Ashley Boone Award, uh, legendary actor Edward James Omos with our Legacy Award, uh, Claudia Pugh, Pugh yeah. will receive mm-hmm. our um, Roger Ebert Award, and Alcon Entertainment will receive our Cinema Vanguard Award. So we're, uh, you know, thrilled. We're setting up for that now, and we're also preparing for the uh, big show, which will be on February 7th. So we're, we're, this is our busy season. It's award season, and we're definitely in the throes of it. Well, congratulations, uh, Gil, on uh, the Kaleidoscope Review launch and obviously your work with the African American Film Critics Association. Thanks a lot for being on the show, and, and thanks for, for parting and contributing also to, to raising awareness of diverse voices in film criticism. It's something that we highly, highly need. So thank you very much for for creating this and for giving an outlet for those. No, thank you. And thank you for the opportunity. I'm looking forward to, you know, uh, meeting you and uh, hopefully collaborating with you on the work that we're doing. Absolutely. All right, Gil, thank you so much. That's it for episode 56 of the Highly Relevant Podcast. I'd like to thank Isabella Raigosa, Julian Roman, Emerson Unger, and Gil Robertson for coming on the show. And thank you guys for taking the time out to listen from your favorite streaming platform wherever you may be. 
If you like this U.S. Latino podcast, please share it on your social media apps. Tell your friends all about it. And if you can, please have them subscribe to the show. Hope you enjoy your weekend and stay connected with us via showbizcafe.com. See you next week on another episode of Highly. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.